listening to the Finance Professor podcast brought to you by financeprofessor.org. Hi, I'm Linus Wilson. I just got back from the FMA meetings in Boston and I recorded a couple sessions while I was there. Today is a session with Andrew Metric of Yale University. Andrew Metric uh, is a renowned scholar. Uh, I checked his SSRN page. He's the 27th ranked scholar out of 350,000 scholars on the Social Science Research Network working paper site uh, by downloads and he's very close to that number by citations on that site. Uh, so I I was looking at the percentile that is but that's uh, much higher than the 0.001 percentile of the authors on that site. Obviously, he's a very influential scholar. Uh, he started out with his PhD from Harvard. He was an assistant professor at Harvard, then an assistant and associate professor with tenure at the Warden School of Business. I think he started out in the economics department at Harvard, then he moved to the finance department at Warden, uh, and then he moved to Yale where I believe he did his undergrad, uh, and he's a full professor there. He's the Michael Jordan professor there. My guess is that his most famous paper is a Gompers Ishi metric paper, uh, which is used as uh, a measure of corporate governance. So there's an index in there, and that gets cited a lot and used in the corporate governance literature. But as he says in this talk, he's kind of moved away from other fields of finance uh, and has pretty much exclusively worked in uh, financial crisis management, looking at the causes of the, the most recent financial crisis and also understanding uh, ways to solve them. And uh, they've started up a, a master's program uh, of which he's a director. So looking at his CV, he's the director of the Yale Program on Financial Stability since 2013 and the faculty director of the Master's in Systemic Risk Program at the Yale School of Management. He also has served the executive office of the present Council of Economic Advisors from August 2009 through July 2010 as a senior economist and chief economist. And when I asked him to record the, the podcast, uh, he mentioned that he recognized my work on TARP and that there was really, I think, overlap over the period where I was somewhat critical of the Obama administration's disposition of the TARP warrants in particular and thinking that they should auction them and that they could get better prices for them if they did. And that probably coincided somewhat with his uh, government's service, which is relatively brief. But, you know, I think 
looking back, if you if you think about uh, how the Obama administration divested the assets overall for the the bank bailout program known as the Troubled Asset Relief Program, that they did a very good job. The terms, in my opinion, were were generous, but maybe they were within the bag hot requirement. And so I think one of the things that Andrew is going to talk about in his talk is the the, uh, tension between uh, whether or not make the the government assistance punitive enough to reflect market prices, uh, but not so punitive uh, that it adds to stigma and nobody wants to participate in the program. And, you know, I think we, me and my co-author, Wendy Wu, we talked about uh, how stigma in in some ways uh, increased the returns uh, to the TARP program for the government uh, because it led to a lot of uh, banks redeeming the TARP capital early. That paper was Escaping TARP and that appeared in the Journal of Financial Stability. In my paper, Toxic asset subsidies and the early redemption of TALF loans. And in that case, I found that the more famous asset managers redeemed uh, their subsidized Federal Reserve loans to buy CMBS commercial mortgage backed securities. They redeemed those subsidized loans more quickly than less famous asset managers. That is, PIMCO and BlackRock uh, redeemed those those government investments uh, much faster than other less famous, less likely to be systemically regulated asset managers. So I recorded this talk on my computer, the audio, and then I also made the talk available on the Finance Professor podcast Facebook page live. So Facebook does this live feed, and so that allowed people to to hear the presentation and see the presentation uh, in real time, and you can still see it there. But I would recommend, if you would like to see the presentation, uh, the, the formatting's a lot better if you see the YouTube version on my website, which is, or my YouTube site, which is Linus Wilson, L-I-N-U-S, Wilson, uh, two words, and that's my channel, and you'll find that. You know, Facebook sometimes, like, puts the, the video frame the wrong way, uh, so I could get rid of all that stuff and also edit it down. There are also, I spent a good amount of time uh, catching all the places where Facebook Live kind of glitched. You know, I, uh, I'm i not super happy with the clips coming from uh, Facebook Live on the YouTube channel. I generally film in HD. It's definitely not HD for his presentation. And I just pretty much let it roll. Uh, so it's it's a little work. It's just better audio than it is video, but it's not great video, which is always a challenge with conference presentations. Uh, 
And the benefit of the listening to the podcast is that you can hear the questioners. I was able to amplify the questions uh, for the podcast, but not really for the video. So the, the questioners at the very end of the presentation in the video, you won't be able to hear, but you can hear the questioners here. Uh, but, you know, whenever you amplify it, even in this podcast format, that makes the background noise louder. So after hearing his talk a few times, not just live there, but from the editing, I would say that his major argument, uh, beyond going through all the programs and the post-crisis response uh, to the financial crisis of 2008, uh, both in the U.S. and abroad, is to say that there's a tension between regulating institutions so the more you regulate institutions, uh, the more likely those institutions are going to put activities that are regulated off their balance sheets into securitizations. And so while capital regulation is not costly, um, from a social point of view, it is costly in the sense that it encourages people to securitize more. And I think that's a, a reasonable argument. And he didn't really have a, a good answer for what's the alternative to do that in terms of preventing the next financial crisis. And I think he would argue that we're still groping for a solution about this uh, regulatory arbitrage question. So I think my two most cited papers are debt overhang and bank bailouts and common stock sense about risk shifting and bank bailouts. The latter paper is co-authored with Wendy Yan Wu. And obviously when banks are over levered, there are very strong um, investment distortions and there are very strong re reasons why they will resist capital regulation, which are not socially optimal, which do not maximize the value of the firm, but may maximize the value of the equity shares in an over-levered bank. And that's the asset substitution problem, the debt overhang problem. And that was one of the reasons why we argued that the TARP was not the best thing because it used preferred stock you really need common stock to restore normal investment lending incentives and why I was a big fan of the stress tests, which uh, encouraged many of the systemically important banks to raise common equity capital uh, prior to redeeming their TARP preferred stock. The other thing I thought was interesting that he said, he, he, you know, he argued, and I think it's true, that there's been a ton of work on the TARP. Uh, I still think there can be more, uh, but there's relatively less uh, that have been done on the Federal Reserve's bailouts of the financial sector. And I've done a few papers on that. Uh, I did one about the TSLF program, Term Securities Lending Facility, done one about the commercial paper funding facility. Both those were co-authored with Wendy Wu. Uh, I mentioned the 
the uh, TALF program that the Federal Reserve administered. And the reason why I think there's been a lot less work done on those programs and looking at the efficacy of those programs and the design of those programs is because the Fed kept those programs secret. So while the Obama administration and the Treasury, uh, even under the Bush administration, when they started the TARP program under the Bush administration, they had a lot of disclosure about the investments they were making in that program in real time. And the Fed did not. And, you know, I wasn't able to ask Andrew if he had a hand in this language or not, but he certainly was uh, mentioned how he was aware of the negotiations uh, for the Dodd-Frank bill. The Dodd-Frank bill forced the Federal Reserve to disclose the participants and the loans made and the investments made through their programs. And so most of those, you know, during the height of the financial crisis, just nobody had data on that, uh, that it was it was only through public disclosures that people had data on that. It certainly was not coming from the government in terms of the, the Federal Reserve. Uh, and so I think that's the cause of that. I think another paper that I did that was part of those disclosures uh, was about the money market guarantee program, which kind of touches on all the issues that uh, Professor Metric and his co-author Gary Gordon uh, talk about uh, on the runs for the repo and uh, their great work in that area. So I'm pleased to have Andrew Metric as the first guest on the Finance Professor podcast. Thanks a lot, Jeff. It was a pleasure working um, with you on, uh, on putting these together this year in a lot of points. I'm, I'm sad to go. I'm sad this is the last one. They're, they're quite good. No, we'll sure get a chance to go to one. So I'm going to talk today about preventing and managing financial crises, and I'm going to be breaking a rule that I tell all of my students, which not the rule I tell them is you never want to have more than uh, uh, three minutes per slide. Make sure you have three minutes per slide, and, and because people are always trying to put in too many slides. I did not follow that rule at all today. <laughs> so I have way more slides that I'm going to be able to get through, uh, because I figured we'll post this on the website, and it'll be up there for posterity. Uh, what I want to try to talk about today is what I think some of the key ideas are in each of these areas, preventing and managing, each of those two areas, preventing and managing financial crises that have come out of is massive sets of regulatory reform that we've seen since the global financial crisis. And so a little bit of this is citations of research that are out there, but that's more to set the stage. I'm not gonna be trying to do an overall survey or, or overview of all the research in the area, just to try to get to what I think some of the key questions are. Also, um, this is sort of a workshoppy kind of a thing. I'm not, you know, this isn't a class, so uh, feel free to interrupt away and, and ask questions. It looks like uh, most of the people in the room here, I won't say, I, I, won't, I won't talk about age, have more of their research careers in front of them than I do. Uh, so so I'm ho I hope to encourage people to work in this particular area. It, it um, I think it is by far the most important thing in my now more than 25 years in this profession that has come out. I totally changed my own research program uh, after the financial crisis. I pretty much only do this now. And if I were 
had more of my career in front of me, uh, I'd be excited to tool up and, and just focus on this exclusively. So the, the young people, I'll say it now, uh, have a lot that they can do in this particular field. And, and I'll try to explain why I think that's true. All right, so the outline of this talk, first I'm gonna just give a bit of a um, sense of what's happened in the regulatory world since the global financial crisis in a few major jurisdictions. Most people in this room probably are familiar with what's happened in the United States, uh, but a lot has happened in Europe as well. And I just wanna give a lay of the land so you can just see how much there is to do. And then I'm gonna do the two, the two topics. One is preventing crises. Uh, we've done a lot on prevention, and there I think the key tension uh, is between, all right, well, let's make sure these banks don't fail, and we put all kinds of regulations on banks, and then you just get migration out of traditional banking into uh, what we call shadow banking or some other kind of banking. And that's a big tension. And a lot of the research in this area is very partial equilibrium. It's like, let's look at banking, figure out what to do about banking, and ignores that. And that's why I think there's a ton to do because we're really just at the beginning of, of understanding that migration and getting more of a general equilibrium sense for crisis prevention. Then there's uh, this topic, which I think gets less attention than it deserves, which is the management of financial crises. You know, right after the crisis, there was a lot of good work that was coming out of the Federal Reserve, such banks around the world, on all the different programs that were done. Um, but that's kind of died off. You know, uh, it, the problem is that these things are all very, seem very idiosyncratic. How are we going to learn all that much from them? And anyway, all the action is where we're going to, what we're going to do to bank capital rules tomorrow and how we're going to design the rules that are still in place. Thinking about how we'll react to the next financial crisis, which may not happen for 50 years, isn't that exciting to, to, to people, I think, which might explain why there's not as much work on it as I think there should be. And I think it's really ripe area. There, the big tension is between um, moral hazard and stigma. So there's a lot of concern that if you have some kind of program to help distressed institutions, if you actually help them, if you bail them out, you're gonna create an enormous amount of moral hazard for the future. And so that gives you a tendency to make sure that whatever program you put into place is extremely punitive. But if you have a very punitive program, then the market infers anyone who's gone to that program is really in bad shape, makes them want to run even faster from them, and you create stigma. And the tension between those two things can make it very difficult to design a program that'll work. And that tension, I think we, we see people exploring in some of the programs from the, from the GFC, and there's just a lot more work to do. So those are the themes, but now let me go into some details. Okay, so just by way of introduction, um, microprudential regulation, that's most of what people studied when they thought of financial regulation before the crisis. And it was a somewhat sleepy field. I had colleagues who worked on it and I used to tease them that it was boring and sleepy and they all got the last laugh because uh, all this regulation stuff was turning to be very interesting. But it was all very micro then. And, and what I mean there, the goal was protecting depositors, investors, consumers, and government insurance funds. We kind of thought about it at the institution level. Um, and that type of regulation has been around in the United States since the 19th century. Uh, really, any time that you had the licensing of banks, which goes back to having banks uh, and governments existing at the same time, there was something like microprudential stuff going on. In the United States, we have many institutions that do this. 
Federal Reserve, the FDIC, OCC, OCC, you can see all of our acronyms, state banking regulators, state insurance regulators. For markets, the SEC, the CFTC, state securities regulators. So there's a lot of actors in this space. This is a space about um, deadweight loss triangles for the most part, right? You know, we're really trying to, we understand that there's imperfections in these markets, there's asymmetric information. We would like these markets to work as well as they can. Um, but it's not, most of the research in the area is not about crises, per se. Macro prudential regulation is a relatively new term. There the goal is protecting the whole financial system, minimizing externalities of failures in that system. The focus, instead of on being on individual institutions, is on the interconnections among institutions, markets, and the real economy. The formal authority for macroprudential regulation is new or significantly increased since 2008 in virtually all developed countries. What I should say is that, uh, what would be more accurate to say here would be, in Asia and in uh, Latin America, after the crises of the 1990s, they put some things in place. They understand them much better and have made them more muscular since the GFC. In uh, Western Europe and in the United States, there was often no real formal authorities until after the global financial crisis uh, to do a lot of the things that we now can do. And, and, and all those formal authorities were granted without a whole lot of research behind them. There wasn't a lot of time. So people just wrote things in often without having any research. So here I would say there's on this particular topic, oh, and I, I should have mentioned on the previous slide. The purposes of this presentation I, this is not the uh, only way people use the term, but when I say macroprudential regulation, I'm talking about crisis prevention. That's not the only meaning of it, but for the purpose of this uh, talk, I'm just going to use them synonymously. So we do macroprudential regulation to prevent a crisis. Okay, there's a ton of work to be done here. I would say maybe we're a little past 1935 now, maybe we're in 1938. We're not that far ahead of what the understanding was of monetary policy as of the Great Depression. If you go back and read what people were talking about when they talked about what we would now call monetary policy leading into the Great Depression, they had absolutely no idea. Um, they, they, it, it didn't occur to them that if you tighten monetary policy, uh, you, you, this might actually be very harmful to the banking system uh, as you go into a recession. It might make things worse. They just didn't really have that. They didn't have a model in their head for that. And I would say that for a lot of what, what uh, what we would think about as crisis prevention now, if you look at the state of the literature, we're fumbling towards having, there's no canonical model uh, that would help us here. There's not one thing that we can point to. We're fumbling towards it a little bit, but there's a general sense, there's a lot of talk these days, I'll talk about it a little bit, of safe assets and safe asset policy and why we should have a safe asset policy instead of just a monetary policy. But there's no formalization of this. There's just a lot of people kind of writing about it. We're where we were. I think on monetary policy. So there's just a ton uh, to be done here. We have to think about what are our objectives. It's not even obvious. So obvious, we would think, well, I'd like to prevent a financial crisis, okay. Um, but if I told you for sure that you had a dial, and if you turn the dial, you know that you could make the financial crisis less likely, but at the same time, you would increase the cost of capital a little bit. So once we construct a perfect system, even then, we're going to have a dial that we would be turning a little bit. Then, you know, you could make it a little bit safer, but at some repressive cost to the system. We don't have that. We haven't figured out what that would look like, what that, what, uh, what that trade-off would be. You know, we have some notion of a Phillips curve, 
or, or uh, 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 even a rational expectations notion that we have a trade-off between unemployment and inflation in the, uh, in the monetary policy world. We don't really, have no, no one's calculated this thing uh, for crises. So what are the right state variables to look at? What instruments should be used? We threw out a whole lot of instruments in the last round of uh, regulation, liquidity instruments, bank capital instruments, we have stress tests which enable us to do all kinds of scope restrictions after the fact on institutions. But what are the right ones? We don't know. So I, I would say again, it's very much the beginning and uh, with all of the data that's gonna come online as we roll out some of these new policies and they get rolled out in kind of very nice quasi-natural experiment ways across different jurisdictions, there's just gonna be a ton of work to do. Okay, so what's this institutional legal background that we have here? I have slides on each of these things to go into a little more detail, but just to, to start, the United States, we have the Dodd-Frank Act of 2010, uh, which is still, we're still writing rules for it. A lot of the most important rules that have been written for Dodd-Frank have not yet been implemented. Uh, some of the things that have been implemented are now getting pulled back or maybe getting pulled back. So there's still a whole lot of uncertainty, and this was just a monster piece of of legislation that, that touched almost every part of the uh, financial regulatory system. It's like the New Deal legislation all rolled up into one. Uh, the, the, the 33 Act, the 34 Act, 1940 Investment Advisors, all these things rolled into one. And uh, in particular, with regards to macro prudential things, it was really the first time that we had done anything systematic in the United States. The United Kingdom was able to wait two years longer to get theirs done. I mean, we, we, we in the United States got Dodd-Frank Act passed in July of 2010. I'm certain we would not have had any kind of law uh, past the midterm elections of 2010 when the Democrats lost Congress, lost the, lost the Senate. Um, so basically at this, at this point, this is sort of all you can really, all, the only time they could have done it, but it would have been better if they waited. It would have been better if they could have waited because we learned a lot between 2010 and 2012. And the Financial Service Act in the UK, I think, I think their system is a little better. It's a little more flexible. Um, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that. European Union, you, know, you can't just write one thing. There's a whole lot of stuff in the European Union. And they all have different names, like directives, and you know they're not really laws. They have their own nomenclature. Uh, but a lot of interesting things, so I'll, I'll talk about that. And then on the international front, we've had a third round of Basel very significant set of changes to the banking, uh, to the to the uh, banking regulations that are proposed, and the introduction of the Financial Stability Board, um, which is an international it's an international cooperative group that really thinks a lot about systemic risk. They produce a lot of interesting reports. It's sort of good good risk for people who want to do research is to stay on top of their website. Okay, so let's let's uh, discuss the U.S. first. Um, okay, so I'm just going to mention five things. Four of them are about prevention. The other one is more about management of crises, but I'm going to lump them all together as we talk about uh, Dodd-Frank. The first is the creation of the Financial Stability Oversight Council, or FSOC. And uh, the Financial Stability Oversight Council is a council of the heads of all of the regulatory agencies, financial regulatory agencies in the United States. 
United States. And they actually have some bite. It can do some things. And it's tasked with kind of looking for the gaps that are out there in the law, uh, looking for things that maybe the SEC on their own wouldn't be paying attention to, or the OCC, the Office of the Control of the Currency, wouldn't be paying attention to, but perhaps somebody should be paying attention to. And also can ask a specific agency that might have responsibility for something, but might not be thinking about it as part of their mandate, because their mandate may not be systemic risk, the FSOC's mandate is systemic risk, they can go to that agency and say, hey, there's a problem here, you guys should do something about this or explain to us why you're not doing it. So that's among their powers. Uh, they have underneath the financial, underneath the FSOC, sort of the secretariat for the FSOC is the Office of Financial Research, which uh, employs a lot of economists now, a couple hundred people doing data collection and uh, economic research on systemic risk. And they uh, provide research that can be used all throughout the government, particularly to help the FSOC. Very interesting place to work, which hopefully won't go away. Uh, it's been some danger, but we hope it won't go away. The Financial Stability Oversight Council can designate, this is perhaps their most powerful, most important function, and it's one that is tremendously contentious, which is that they can designate an institution, a non-bank institution, as being systemically important, and then that institution comes under the oversight of the Federal Reserve. Now, that's very important because Lehman Brothers, AIG, they did not have, they did not have systemic risk regulators. They did not have regulators who cared about systemic risk. So AIG has, as we know in this country, we have state insurance regulation. There was no national insurance regulator looking at them. They owned a thrift, but the Office of Thrift Supervision wasn't really paying attention to systemic risk. Lehman Brothers, their, their uh, overall comprehensive uh, regulator was the SEC. The SEC didn't really, wasn't thinking about systemic risk, didn't really consider that to be something that they should be worried about. They're worried about, about disclosure and about markets functioning well. Um, so well, there is no Lehman Brothers anymore, but AIG became systemically, was designated systemically important, although they've now just voted and maybe they will be removed from that list. Uh, but for a while, they were on that list. They designated MetLife, they tried to designate MetLife, MetLife sued, and so far is winning. Uh, but the idea here is that when you are large and you might be systemically important and powerful, you don't get to have, you know, your state regulator in charge of you anymore. The Federal Reserve can be, yes? Probably you want to answer this later, but do we know how much transaction cost or capital cost increase for the systemically important? Um, I'm going to talk about what, what it would mean to have, to, to what capital requirements might mean in terms of cost in general, and we can think about it specifically for this case. You want to say that, in, that overall, there's a real, it's, this makes it so difficult to do this type of regulation. This doesn't answer your question yet, but hopefully I'll get to it later, but this is a, somewhat of an aside to it, which is that, um, the people who don't like government bailouts and government being and, and government helping banks say this is terrible to designate them because you've designated them as being too big to fail. You've said you're too big to fail and we're gonna you know watch you really carefully and everyone kind of knows that means you'll get bailed out. <laughs> and so uh, uh, the, there's a part of the world that looks at this and says this is terrible. This is your bailout list. And then of course there's the institutions themselves who will, you know, hire billions of dollars worth of lawyers so that they're no longer designated. So they certainly don't think that, that means that they're gonna get bailed out. 
So there is a there is a question: Is this good or a bad thing for that particular institution? Um, most certainly, if, a, if we throw out any notion that this actually makes you too big to fail and, and lowers your cost of capital because of that, they're not going to like this because it's just more regulation. It's just more oversight. Perhaps you have to hold more capital, but not necessarily. Not if you're a non-bank. So uh, there are rules for systemically important banks um, that go through the Basel. So there's rules about holding more capital if you fall into certain categories. That's different than designation because you're kind of, in, in many cases, you're, you're falling under uh, more of international rules or just rules that the Fed might, you're already regulated by a bank regulator and just sort of falling above a threshold they make you hold more capital. This one is uh, also important and under some stress right now. This is uh, a completely new way to do resolution slash liquidation of a large, systemically important financial institution. Again, take AIG or Lehman as examples. The only choices that existed for the US government in 2008 were either bankruptcy or bailout. That was all that existed. Neither worked out well in some sense, right? Bankruptcy for Lehman almost brought down the whole world's financial system. And the bailout of AIG almost brought down our political system. So, so neither's great. And the idea here is well, let's have some middle way, something that's other than bailout or bankruptcy. And orderly liquidation, the first draft of Dodd-Frank called an orderly resolution. And you know, people said, no, no, you can't have that. We don't resolve, we liquidate. Okay, so it got changed to orderly liquidation. Uh, that enables you to take a systemically important financial institution through a not through a resolution-like process like we do for a failing bank. Okay. Now I should point out you do not need this is a something often uh, there's a distinction that is an important distinction. You do not need to be designated as systemically important prior to being brought through orderly liquidation under Title II of Dodd-Frank. Also if you are designated as being systemically important, you do not need to be brought through Title II of Dodd-Frank. You can still be forced into bankruptcy. So there's no sense in which when, some, when, when, the, uh, when there is designation of, let's say, AIG as being systemically important, that that means for sure, if AIG is in trouble, they're going to get taken through this orderly liquidation process. They can still be made to go bankrupt. And in fact, the FDIC, they will fall on their swords and they will tell you, Title I bankruptcy is our first choice for everybody. Everybody has to write living wills. Everybody's going to go through bankruptcy. We absolutely refuse to take anybody through Title II, uh, orderly liquidation. They will say that over and over and over again. That is the party line. Okay, so it doesn't matter if you're designated. We're still not going to use this. But this is what we have, completely untested. Okay, so we have another financial crisis. We have the, now, as opposed to FDIC resolution, FDIC resolution we've done hundreds and hundreds of times. This is kind of similar. It borrows a lot of the same language from the, from the statute that enables FDIC resolution to happen for small banks. But of course, it's a very different animal if you're going to do this for AIG. And uh, there's, there's, uh, the, the literature is almost completely silent on what the impacts are. And I can tell you that there are, this is one of the things that I worked on when I was in Washington, there are paragraphs in there where people fought like crazy over certain language in these things that I think is extremely consequential. And we don't really, you know, we don't even have like a model to grind it through to figure out whether it's consequential. 
I'll give you, I'll just throw out one example, just because this is a random example. So when you take a large institution through a uh, resolution, so Title II is the part of Dodd-Frank that says, all right, we're gonna, we're gonna all turn the key. The FDIC, the Federal Reserve, and the Treasury all say, time to take AIG or whoever through uh, orderly liquidation. Once they say that, then there's a certain amount of time that they have to decide what things that were in AIG are going to get thrown into a stub that will go bankrupt, and what part will go into a bridge bank that can borrow from Treasury and will continue to operate as it slowly winds down? And the question is, how long should they have to do that? How much time do you want to give them? Well, it seems like a very consequential thing. If you give them, as some of their early drafts had in there, five days, it's like an enormous, I mean, five days, you're gonna, you're gonna think, oh, five days is too short. But actually, five days is so long that anybody who thinks this might happen is even a little worried about this happening runs way, way before. Like there's even a hint of title, there's no way they can wait five days. So uh, uh, the language that's ultimately in there, you know, they have them waiting three days, okay? Well, if they wait only one day, then of course there's no way they can make up their mind in one day, it's impossible. So they'd have to write the rules down in advance. There'd be no way to actually do it beforehand, which would have created a different level of uncertainty. But how do we even think about that? Well, there's lots of different regimes around the world that try these different, that have these different things, and go out and look to see what data we have, at least for smaller institutions. Um, but that's one. I mean, I'd say all over Title II, there's all these things, and then the rules that have been written for uh, Title II afterwards that give guidelines. In each one of these cases, there's a question about you know how will this work in practice. Another thing which I'll talk about less today, uh, um, but it's, it's a fascinating, fascinating area. And for anybody who is interested in it, it's, it's the work of Daryl Duffy. You just go to Daryl's website and read what his research in this, and you'll, you'll know what you need to know. Um, which is that in the crisis, there were some enormous problems, say in two different cases, Lehman Brothers, when Lehman Brothers failed, there was an enormous amount of breakage in the bankruptcy from their swaps positions. They actually had a flat book in swaps. Um, but because of the way that, that derivatives work in bankruptcy, with people being able to use, they have a safe harbor, they can kind of unilaterally get out of transactions, and the way that Lehman was forced to post collateral in advance, the estate lost an enormous amount of its value. You know, a big chunk of why their debt ended up at 20 cents on the dollar uh, was because of the breakage in bankruptcy. And that was because this whole market was over the counter. So a lot of people thought, well, one way to try to fix that is just move more of that stuff into clearing houses, because then to the extent you have a flat book, you're not gonna get that kind of breakage. You don't get breakage like that on your exchange traded things, for example, we didn't see that. So that's one motivation for doing it. Another motivation for doing it uh, is like AIG had enormous, they did not have a flat book, they had enormous exposures. But nobody, no one counterparty knew what their exposures were. There was no one place where we could see, oh my God, they get downgraded, this is how much collateral it's gonna cost them. This is what the overall exposure just wasn't in one place. And the regulators, you could say, wow, the regulators should have been paying attention to that. But even a very good regulator, in the absence of a clearinghouse, they, I don't know how you go through a million transactions and they have these types of things. So now, under Dodd-Frank, and under similar types of rules in Europe, um, a lot more of what used to be over the counter, it's not exchange traded, so it doesn't have to be traded on an exchange, 
but there needs to be a reporting of prices, and in some cases, the centralized posting of collateral. There's a huge number of questions about that. Uh, I, I'll mention a little bit of them later, but we don't even know things like, what's, how, how different is it if we have three central clearing houses versus having two versus having one? Daryl Duffy has some research saying, unambiguously, it's better to have one than to have two, and better to have two than to have three. Um, but you, you might think, well, if I have one, then I have all the risk in one place. Yes, but of course, if you have a bunch, you lose all the value of the netting, which is why we want to have these things in the first place. So uh, Daryl's done some excellent work, but he'd be the first to tell you that it, we're just at the beginning of understanding that. Okay, so in the UK, um, they, they have, so the United States, of course, we have this problem because we have a very balkanized um, financial system, financial regulatory system. It's very balkanized. And it's almost impossible to fix. This is a backdrop to then talking about the UK. So for example, in the United States, we have the SEC and the CFTC. Just, this is just one example. And they used to be really different. The SEC dealt with, with financial products, and the CFTC was doing hog futures, you know, or, or, or hog presence, you know, spot markets for commodities and things. That, of course, has changed a lot over time, and now the CFTC is doing financial derivatives on indices, and the SEC does financial derivatives on individual names. But there's a lot of overlap between what those two uh, regulatory agencies do. There's one example of a million things. So you would think a logical thing to do would just be to put them together. And in fact, people who work at the CFTC, and the, even people who work at the CFTC who would get largely swallowed understand that that would be a very good idea. A lot of people think this would be a really good idea. And it was proposed in early versions of Dodd-Frank, um, but they couldn't do it, they had to drop it. They had to drop it, why? Because for historical reasons, the CFTC is overseen by the Senate Agricultural Committee, and the SEC is overseen by Senate Banking Committee, and if you're on the Senate Agricultural Committee, you know, you get 90% of your donations from, from companies, that, from firms that are regulated by the CFTC. You don't want to give that up. So essentially, Democrats who sat on, the, on that committee, who should have been in favor of a Democratic presidency, said, well, we can't. There's no way we can give this up. Just leave, the, leave, leave these two things separate. This kind of silliness right, that we have that makes it hard to fix things in the US. And in the UK, they have, they have an advantage and a disadvantage. Their political system is an advantage and a disadvantage relative to ours, which is that this, the parliamentary system that they have enables them to be a bit more nimble when it comes to these things. And nimble means they can be a bit more patient. So they were able to wait a couple of years until they had a better idea what went wrong, and then they were able to write down a law that made more sense and get it passed because they didn't have to worry about is they didn't have the same type of lobbying problems that we had. Now, there's a downside to that. Paul Tucker who um, was uh, the deputy, the number two person at the Bank of England during the crisis, has said um, at post-Brexit that uh, in the United States, we are, the United States is terrible at kind of making normal laws, but very good at constitutional laws. We're good at constitutional laws because we don't do them. Okay, we don't make huge, maybe we can't, it's impossible. Okay? And he says, whereas the UK, is very, very good at making changes to their laws, but that flexibility means that if they want to go and do things like leave the entire European Union, they're able to do that. Can you imagine we can never vote on something like that in the US. So that's the advantage to their system is that they can easily write a law like this. The disadvantage is they can vote on Brexit in a referendum that nobody knew was coming. 
Okay, so upsides and downsides. So what they do, um, they created three new bodies in the, in, the FS, in the Financial Services Act. The Financial Policy Committee, the FPC, that's an analog, it's kind of an analog to the Financial Stability Oversight Council, the FSOC in the US. It has the same kind of overall lookout for systemic risk things, make people do, make people fix stuff up if they, if, if you don't like it. It is, however, a committee within the Bank of England. It might have been better if we had, if we had empowered the Fed to do this instead of requiring them to cooperate with nine other agencies with different uh, mandates. Um, but it has the same type of job. They took their micro-prudential activities and put them in a new body called the Prudential Regulation Authority. And that also exists now within the Bank of England and before that had been in its own place, the FSA, Financial Services, and which, which was turned out to not work. So they got rid of that, they brought it all back into the Bank of England. And then the Financial Conduct Authority, and that's kind of like our consumer financial protection with some SEC market regulation stuff thrown in. This up here is really where you have the macro proof. Um, the Chancellor of Check Ace, where their Treasury Secretary has veto power in a crisis if public funds are to be used. We basically have that same thing now in the US. The Treasury Secretary has a lot more power to veto stuff. Uh, that's gonna be done by the Federal Reserve to be informed about it, to have the opportunity to veto it than they did before. Okay, the EU has done a whole variety of, of, of interesting things. Uh, also here, this, this I, I suspect, is gonna be the place where, um, you know, it's, it's always like there's our smart friends from Sweden and the Netherlands who get these cool data sets, because they're doing fun things now, fun for us as researchers, not fun for the people who are doing them, uh, with all the banking problems that they have in Europe because they've created a whole bunch of new rules and they're actually trying them out, you know, doing things. Like they'll create a whole rule that says you must, you absolutely must bail in certain types of debt before you can put government funds into any kind of financial rescue. So they put that rule in, it's like in the big rule, it's all over there, it's a directive, all the countries have adopted it. And then they find out that, you know, every single time they have to deal with a the bank, they're unable to do the bailout. It's just like politically impossible. Okay, so we, we, they get to have examples. We don't have too many examples right now in the United States because we mostly like fixed our banks uh, six years ago. Um, so what they do here, they created the European system of financial supervision. This just doesn't exist before. It's a totally new thing, the ESFS. And it has three supervisory authorities, European Banking Authority, Securities Market, Insurance, okay, and the European Systemic Risk Board. So this is, Euro area, sorry, uh, EU-wide, not just Euro, EU-wide. And EU-wide things don't actually have a whole lot of power. So they're really just trying to write rules, get everybody to sign up to those rules, make things consistent across the Euro area. The real bite exists in things that have been created inside the Eurozone. And that is the single supervisory mechanism. So now they've moved, it used to be the case that banks all were, were supervised by their national authorities. You're a large bank in Spain, it was the Bank of Spain, or whatever the regulatory agency was in Spain that, that looked after you. Deutsche Bank, Germany did that. Now, the 135 or so largest European banks are all supervised centrally. Okay, so this is all another interesting thing that we've immediately, that you can immediately do, which is there's, 
interesting cutoffs there for whether you're supervised centrally or not. Uh, I'm looking to see what, what the banks do that, are, that is different. They also instituted the single resolution mechanism. This is the thing that they keep kind of trying to get to work, but it's not working yet. And they've had a few opportunities to try it out. This is also just the Eurozone. This has a few different components. It has a fund. This is like the, 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 what the FDIC would be doing in the United States. It's sort of the receivership aspect of it. Um, there's a single resolution board, which is an independent EU agency to ensure the orderly resolution of failing banks. And the, and the single resolution board manages the single resolution fund, which then has to work with various national funds. Uh, which together make up the single resolution mechanism. Then there's another animal called the European Stability Mechanism, which is different than this because it's not specifically about banks. This is more to help sovereigns. Okay? But of course, sovereigns are almost always in trouble because of their banks, at least in recent experience. Um, so this is the, it, it's this and the precursor to this that were helping out uh, the countries that were having sovereign, sovereign default problems that were kind of going and helping out Cyprus which is ultimately getting in trouble because of its banks, but being helped by the ESM. So they have a variety of mechanisms, and this, I mean, if you, it, it's hard to, I mean, I can't think, I just, just can't really think about things like, this. think about how many papers get written about one, like one, just one of these things would be worth, I don't know, 100 papers. Uh, you get like all of them at once, this embarrassment of riches. Uh, and in Europe, they're actually doing stuff. So, so there's, um, if you can speak any of those languages, it's worthwhile to figure out what it is there. Okay, Basel, you probably know some of this history, at least, um, but uh, there was no, there was no capital requirements the way we think of as capital requirements for banks um, prior to the 1980s. You know, individual regulators did things and they looked at capital as one of the capital ratios, as one of the inputs into their supervisory decisions. Um, but there was no formal, until the Basel Agreements came along in the 1980s, the Basel Accords. There was Basel I in 1988. There was various uh, uh, amendments to Basel I over the years. Basel II in 2004, which the United States never adopted. Okay, so we were on Basel I, various amendments to Basel I right up until the crisis. And then Basel III which was agreed to 2010, 2011, and is now getting implemented all over the place. Basel III is quite novel. So it has rules for capital, um, higher capital requirements in general, but also more complex measures of risk, and a variety of uh, steps, depending on how big the banks are, with extra buffers that go in. It also introduced liquidity rules for the very first time. Liquidity rules are very funny to financial economists when we hear them for the first time because it seems logical to lay people. They say like, well, these banks, they just, they're lending long, they're, 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 they're borrowing short and lending long. Yeah, they're very unstable, this is crazy. You say, well, that's a bank, that's what a bank does. Okay, so Basel is trying to basically cut down on the amount of banking done by banks. So the logical thing to happen there is some of that activity is gonna move outside of banks. Okay? But these are completely new rules. It's shocking how few papers are on this. I mean, there's a lot of papers about liquidity, but in terms of papers about the liquidity rules and what the bite of these liquidity rules will be, I'm writing a survey now and I just, it's just, just like a handful. And that's it, because it's so hard to, they haven't been implemented yet in a lot of different, a lot of different countries. So you gotta go look to historical examples 
like reserve requirements are kind of like liquidity rules. Um, and uh, the way we had legislation in the United States in the 19th century about the National Bank Act requiring everybody to always back up collateral U.S. government bonds for any bank notes they issued is kind of like liquidity rules. There's some, some similar types of rules that have been passed in Europe pre-crisis that people study. But these are going to get rolled out across countries in a staggered way over the next six years. It's just like a dreamland uh, for, for, for uh, researchers. Not so much for banks. Okay, so here's the, here's, this is the, I promise, the key tension. Uh, the key tension in macroprudential regulation is between the desire to put strong regulation on systemically important institutions versus the, what will likely happen, which is the migration of activity outside those institutions. This is a constant theme, right? Which is, if you're going to put stronger capital requirements, you're going to put stronger liquidity requirements, you're going to say, here, banks, here's a million rules for you and scope restrictions. What's likely to happen is you shrink your regulated banking sector and your shadow banking sector gets bigger. On the other hand, you can't throw up your hands and say, well, okay, well, I'm not going to do anything. So I, I think basically the research in this area has to be very sensitive to that. I'm going to illustrate that just by talking about the bank capital example, just sort of some very simple uh, results from the literature about bank capital that show why this is important, but also show why a lot of what we currently do, well, this huge literature we have on bank capital, just might not be the first order thing to worry about anymore. And now in this new world, uh, we should be worried about, we, we need to be thinking about migration much more and less about calibrating bank capital models that we did in the past. Okay, so that, that's what I'm going to talk about now. Um, and uh, here, so from a bank capital perspective, we think like what are the rules from uh, Basel, what are the rules that any, in, that any uh, jurisdiction has for bank capital? You're basically telling a bank you have to hold, let's ignore all the fancy first tier and risk-weighted asset stuff. Let's just think about it. You have to have this much equity for, for your assets. You have to have this much equity. However we're going to measure your assets, risk-weighted or not, you have to hold on your balance sheet a certain amount of equity. Okay? Uh, 2%, 4%, 6%, whatever that number is. So what we teach our students in corporate finance is that to a first approximation, we know there's frictions, but to a first approximation, Modigliani Miller tells us it doesn't really matter to the value of a firm how much equity they have on their balance sheet. How they're financing their assets between equity and debt is not to a first approximation uh, material for the value of their firm. So if you go, for example, to I don't know what McDonald's capital structure is right now, but let's say McDonald's capital structure is that they're at 20% equity and 80% debt. I'm just making that up. Um, and you go to them and you say, you must go to 30% equity. You have to go to 30% equity. There was a new, you know, Dodd-Frankfurter law that said that <laughs> McDonald's has to go to 30% equity. McDonald's, I'm sure they would complain and they'd be really angry, but mostly they would just think it was strange, right? So, all right, fine, I guess so, if you force us to do it. And it would have some, you know, there's some small effect on their interest costs. We know how this works, but it's not some big, huge thing. If you go to a bank, if you go to J.P. Morgan and you say, you have to go from 5% equity to 12% equity, they will tell you with a completely straight face, the world will come to an end. Yeah. If you make us go to 12% equity, we might as well just shut, shut the doors of our business because we can't be business. 
And you scratch your head, and uh, Anand Admati, through some papers and her book, has pointed out a large number of very specious arguments made by the banks uh, trying to defend this, because most of the arguments that they make are specious. You know, just sort of like the, the first argument they'll make is just, well, you know, the cost of equity is higher than the cost of debt. And you say, well, that is what Giuliani Miller, that, you can't you make that one. That one we've known for, for 60 years isn't right. But they'll still stick to it. Okay, so they make a bunch of specious arguments here. But there must be something going on. I mean, these are pretty smart people, and they're losing their minds when you tell them they have to have a little more capital. So this is coming back to your question earlier. So let's suppose we actually do it. So what's happening, and why is this related to the research stream that, that we should have to care about? Okay, so let's let's think. So first thing we do, we go through, and this is what, what uh, Anat does in her, in her work, goes through and kind of debunks these things, which is important to do. There are violations to Bidigliani Miller. Maybe that's what's explaining it. So there's interest costs. Maybe that's the problem, right? You know, you can deduct one, you can't deduct the other. The first thing to recognize from that is that really shouldn't, you know, that's not a social cost. Privately, the banks might care about that, okay? But a tax deduction, if, that, if the only reason they want to have a lot of equity, a lot of debt, not a lot of equity, is a tax deduction, then maybe tax policy needs to be changed, okay? But more, even more to the point, they shouldn't lose their minds over it. Kashyap Stein and Hansen, in a very, very readable paper, I'm gonna show you some of their results, just do a calibration and they say, well, how big could this be? one or two basis points per percentage point uh, of additional capital to make them hold. It's not the type of thing that would drive them out of business. And it's not that different for, it's not any different for a bank than it would be for McDonald's. Right? So for the same reason that it matters to McDonald's, it would matter to a bank. Okay, the second one which gets closer to banking is the notion that, look, what a bank does is, uh, the, the main business of a bank is producing debt. That's a bank's business. Okay? Uh, when I'm a bank, if, if essentially you come to me and I'm offering you convenience, you're gonna make deposits in my bank and you get convenience from those deposits because you can use them in transactions. So the interest rate that I have to pay you on those, on those uh, deposits is lower than what you would just get out of a stochastic discount factor model because you have some convenience from this convenience. Same reason you hold currency in your pocket at zero. Right? There's a convenience yield to holding it. Uh, Skander Vandenhoibel put together a very nice model just trying to estimate well, what would the value of that be? Because that's where a lot of bank profits come from. They're basically earning a convenience yield. And there's a debate that's out there and they, where, where, um, uh, where Kashyap Stein and Hansen come out it's kind of to agree with Admati that yeah, okay, there's something there, but it's just like, again, another basis point or two. It's not a big deal per percentage point of capital. So what would it be? Okay, another thing would be too big to fail insurance, right? So what would be a violation of Modigliani Miller? Modigliani Miller assumes that, you know, you change your equity debt uh, um, ratios and the risks move on these two things to kind of all, all offset it so the overall cost of financing your assets is the same. But that wouldn't be true if kind of the government helped your debt more than it helped your equity. Like he said, oh, don't worry, you can always borrow from these guys because we'll always make sure you get paid back in full. Um, and again, the nice thing about the, 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 the uh, KSH paper is they try to go through and grind this out given the data that's out there. They try to say, like, how, how big are these things, really, if we think these are the reasons? And when they add everything all up together, they don't get a huge number. Right? They get 
10 or 20 basis points for adding, so I think what they get to in the end is like 10 or 20 basis points for adding five percentage points to, to the overall capital ratio. 10 or 20 basis points to the cost of capital bank, which is not nothing, but it doesn't seem like they should go, you know, the whole industry wouldn't be destroyed. You know, we're gonna move down the demand curve a little bit. But what they point out, and this, and this is crucial, and they're gonna, I'm gonna show you a little bit of evidence from their paper on this, is that competition in banking drives leverage ratios higher and drives competition with unregulated intermediaries or shadow banks. So when the banks are saying, look, if you tax us just this little bit, you're gonna kill us, they're not really, they're, they're not crazy. It wouldn't be crazy if you, if, if you think of banking and the services provided by banking as having close substitutes outside of the regulated banking industry. Okay, so to keep pushing this ana analogy about banks, if you think that what, uh, 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 about banks selling debt, if, if banks' business is actually selling debt, that's what, they, that's what they do, right? So I want 80% of my balance sheet to be debt because that's what I'm selling. I don't sell shoes or hamburgers, I sell debt. Okay? Then telling a bank you have to have 20% equity would be like telling McDonald's you must sell 20% chicken McDonald's. Okay? That is your business. And yet there's this unregulated burger joint down the street that doesn't have to do that. So most people might just want to go down the street so they have to deal with the, you know, all, these other, all this chicken stuff. They want them to specialize just in burgers. Okay? So what's going on here is it's, you're actually altering the competitive landscape with having these rules relative to the competitors that they have that have learned how to do maturity transformation and other forms of banking activities without being under the umbrella of a regulated bank. Okay, so let's see some, what's the evidence for that? Okay, so uh, the KSH figure three, figure three is just going to show that size and leverage are positively correlated. It's, it's just an appetite, just to whet our appetite, okay? And these wonderful pictures here with lots of dots in them, the key is down here. You can all read that, right? Yeah. yeah. I'm gonna give you the basic idea, it's very simple, which is, the, and you go in this direction, the book equity to book assets, in this direction the banks are getting smaller. Okay, so essentially the biggest banks have the smallest book equity, this is, this is over time, and these are just by quartile, quintile of bank. Okay, so the higher the line goes, uh, the book equity to book assets is just higher. The smaller the bank, the smaller the quintile that we're in, the more equity they have. It's just sort of a funny thing. It seems like big banks tend to be more highly levered. And it's the same thing over here using risk-based capital ratios instead of just equity, instead of just book equity. Right, so that's just a wetter appetite. Why would big banks uh, uh, be more highly levered? Well, big banks are much more likely to be competing with other banks, including other big banks. Small banks. Uh, particularly historically, when we go back here, uh, back to the uh, back to, back to the 70s and to the 80s, um, there wasn't. You could be a bank, a small bank that had no competition because of branching restrictions uh, in those days. All right, so let's actually take advantage of this nice natural experiment we did in the United States with branching restrictions and the loosening of branching restrictions in this now kind of famous way to attack. Uh, problems in banking, and look to see what that did overall to ratios. So what they do, this is also, this is from KSH, they're going to do this kind of standard uh, stray hand kind of uh, exercise where you look at states that over time got rid of either interstate branching restrictions or intra-state branching restrictions. And they're just going to do, they're just going to do a diff and diff, 
type of, uh, uh, of analysis. You got a nice big panel, and we're just gonna try to figure out what happens to the equity to asset ratio in a state when there is deregulation. So deregulation means all of a sudden I'm competing with more people. Okay, so it's a nice measure of competition and all that matters here, I mean, you can look at it, the dependent variable, here's the dependent variable is the mean. So what happens when you use either intrastate, you've deregulated intrastates, it's just a variable that goes from zero to one. There's gonna be a year where it goes from zero to one across all these different states because everybody, well, not everybody had restriction before, but almost everybody had restriction as of the mid 70s and nobody had restriction as of the mid 90s. Um, and when you put them both in the regression, for example, interstate and interstate, the key idea here is that if you're looking at the, at the means, both of these things are significant. So you get a lower, this is a negative number probably, but you can see that, you get a lower equity to assets ratio upon deregulation. So there's more competition, and you become more highly levered. You change your capital structure just in relation to the, to the competitive forces that are there. Okay, so let's see some other long run uh, evidence on that. What I wanna show you is what's happened over time, now focused on the United States. Europe has not had this transition. And they don't have as much of a market-based uh, finance system as we do have in the United States. But they do a little more in England, but they're, they're, they're moving towards it. So let's see what's happening in the United States since World War II. Okay, so this is a little bit of, a, of a, a financial revolution to some extent, but with some strange things that have stayed the same and some things that have changed. This is from a paper that I did with Gary Gorton and Stefan Llewellyn, where the first thing we've done is we've just measured in blue, blue is the ratio of uh, total assets to GDP. This is just flow of funds divided by GDP. And you add up the total amount of assets on the balance sheet. Uh, uh, and so there's gonna be some weird double counting here. That's on purpose, okay? So if I have an asset and bundle it and put in another asset, you have an asset and it's gonna get counted twice. So what happened here, the total amount of assets, it was um, four times GDP in 1952, and it climbs to about 10 times uh, uh, GDP. Total amount of assets climbs to about 10 times GDP. Um, in 2010. In red, we're just gonna do financial assets. So we're taking out, you know, houses aren't in there, fixed equipment isn't in there. So just financial assets, and over here, that's the right scale. And that goes from a little more than one to four and a half. So the total amount of assets to GDP ratio in the United States went from four to 10, like factor of 2.5. But the component of that, that is financial assets, went from from one times GDP to 4.5 times GDP. Right? So there's a lot, there was a lot more growth in financial assets overall. We financialized ourselves a lot. All right, so that's, have that in the background. This is not a stable time for overall assets. What we're gonna do next though, is we're going to just take, we're gonna do an estimate of all of these financial assets, what fraction of them would you call safe? Okay, so AAA ratings, Triple, you know, triple A corporates would go in there, securitize, sell like 75% of securitized bonds because 75% of securitized bonds are rated triple A. Let's just add those things together. It's not, a, it's not a sophisticated exercise. Again, it's from flow of funds. From 1952 to 2010, that number, that ratio is almost, is like always between 30 and 35%. So we're, think about what's happening. Like total amount of assets is going up. We're going from 
one times GDP to 4.5 times GDP, but some relatively constant fraction of this thing is staying safe. It looks a lot like, to, you know, from, from when we first started to study macro, it looks a lot like these very constant ratios that you get of, of output to money. Right? There's a notion in which, like, of financial assets, of total, of, 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 sorry, this isn't of total assets, this is of total financial assets. Okay, so this is safe asset share of total financial assets that are out there. So you have a certain amount of total financial assets, some of the safe stuff is basically used to support everything else. It's like lubricating it. It's like transactions, you can use this stuff in transactions and as collateral. But look where these safe assets are coming from. 1952, 80% of safe assets were coming from deposits. This was a, this was a bank, this was like a very bank-centered system. You want to do something to the financial system, you go and you tell the banks, we want you to behave differently, hold more equity or do something. But where these safe assets get produced as now overall this time, and again, remember, as a fraction of total assets, it's staying about constant. But where is it coming from by the time we get to 2010? We're at about 30% of it coming from bank deposits. And the rest coming from all these other things, securitized debt, corporate bonds and loans, other liabilities, other liabilities are, are, um, are, are this category up here. A lot of the other liabilities are, are, mixes, are, are mixing up some of the things from the other categories. So we're no longer in this total bank-centered system that we're in here. And we can't think that just by going in and changing bank capital requirements, we're somehow going to make the world safe. All right, what are some, some I'm calling these semi-stylized facts. Not really, there, it, there's not enough here to be stylized. Okay, so they're sort of stylized facts. The assets to GDP ratio is increasing, financial assets to GDP ratio increasing even faster. The share of all assets that could broadly be considered safe or money-like or information insensitive, that's Gary's favorite term, has remained relatively stable with government and financial components acting as substitutes. That's gonna be an important point I'll mention below. Within the financial debt component of safe assets, the share made up by bank deposits has fallen with its place taken by a broad range of shadow banking creations. That's very long run that I just showed you. This actually works incredibly well at short horizons. You know, if people are familiar with Adi Sundaram's RFS paper from 2015, which is just a very, very cool result, he just, he shows that essentially if you just track what's going on in the convenience yield, which is like a, a, a short-term measure for what, what's happening in um, the convenience yield, which is like a short-term measure for what's happening in the, the spread between treasuries and some other risk-free thing. It was telling you just how, how, how scarce treasuries are. Or if you look at just how much revenue the government has brought in one week versus another week, which is somewhat random, it's fiscal, it's not a monetary thing. You can observe at weekly horizons more asset-backed commercial paper being issued. So in other words, we get a little increase in the spread of the convenience yield, more asset-backed commercial paper gets issued. We had a student at Yale who did the same thing, a very similar type of thing, looking at sec actual securitizations. Like when you have all this stuff sitting in your warehouse, when do you securitize it and throw it out on the market? Well, when do you do that? You do that in a week where the convenience yield has popped. Okay, so over very short horizons, the financial markets are quite good at manufacturing substitutes um, for the type of safe assets that banks traditionally did. So that's our, that's our background to this. 
Okay, so what are, what do I think are some big open questions here? Um, I'm just going to give you, I have two slides, I couldn't fit them all on one slide. Right? We could have made many more slides. All right, first, how do we do cost-benefit calculations for financial regulations? We're missing good models of both the costs and the benefits. You can see this just in the bank capital space, which has gotten the most attention. It's the reason I use the bank capital example. I don't actually think the bank capital place is the most interesting place to work, because there are a lot of people working in bank capital. There's like no one working on liquidity rules. Um, and we have a lot of liquidity rules that are, that are coming out. But even in the bank capital space, so what do we think, well, what's the cost of having higher bank capital? Well, e first, even if you just think it's happening within the banking space, we don't have a great mapping for what the cost, what the change in bank capital rules on the cost of capital overall for banks is. We don't have a great mapping for that. But even if you had that, you then have to put in the migration of everything that goes out and figure out what the cost of capital would be to uh, what the ultimate cost of capital would be to any of the borrowers or any of the users of bank capital. We don't, we don't know that. We don't know how the change in the cost of capital maps into economic growth because we've ignored these kinds of things in our macro models. We don't have a great model of that. Um, furthermore, we'd like to know what we don't know, even in a world where all you had were banks, if you change the bank capital ratio for all banks from a minimum of 10% to 20%, what does that actually do to the probability of having a financial crisis and how bad that financial crisis will be if you have it? We don't know that. Um, so, so all these things, really to do them well, is going to require some better kind of grand macro model. This is outside of just finance, but we need a macro model that has intermediation a little more fundamentally part of it. Right? What, what's happened since the crisis is that you know the DSGE world, and they're very sophisticated people, but they've kind of just grafted on top of their models and inter financial intermediation. Instead of it being kind of part of the system to begin, it's like we have this big huge system, and now we're just going to put this little like pipe from here to here. Okay, and that's not, that's not, they're not built to help us answer these questions. Okay, big open questions continue. Now getting uh, um, more specific. This one is a very active debate for which there's, it's very, it's very political, this particular debate. Um, the FSOC in the United States can do this thing they call designation. And there's a, there was a, uh, it's died down a bit now, because I think the industry has won, but there was a big fight at one point about whether they should designate large asset management firms. So BlackRock, should BlackRock be designated as systemically important? And BlackRock have successfully argued that we don't really, yeah, we're the big balance sheet, it's not our balance sheet, we don't actually have control over these assets, we're a custodian for other people, sometimes we're an agent for other people, but that's different uh, than what it is for a bank. And furthermore, you shouldn't, why are you going after us? What you should go after is some specific type of activity that's done by these institutions. So if you think it's really dangerous, this one little thing that's done by some institutions, well, don't just go after us, go after the activity. And there's a certain sense to that. On the other hand, it's very hard to know where all the activity is happening at any point in time if you're a regulator. So it's also a bit disingenuous because it's like, you know, hey, nothing to see here. Um, uh, but the thing is, you won't see it anywhere else either. But we don't know how to do this. If you decide that it's institutions, because at least you can see them, I know when there's an institution that has a, a $200 billion balance sheet. I can observe that, okay? So I'm gonna watch you really carefully. But how do you decide? 
the, the, there was an attempt to write down a set of rules. The Office of Financial Research wrote a report for the FSOC where they tried to write down a set of rules. Here's what you should do to, to designate. And then like the whole world came crashing down. The industry pushed really hard back against that because this, there wasn't, there was no research. There was nothing that we could get, give them from the academic world that would enable them to, to, to get help. And then, I, I, this is something I mentioned earlier, I haven't talked a lot about in detail, it's a technical area. Um, so for people who are technically inclined, there's a lot of the newer tools, particularly like tools of network theory, that can be brought to bear on questions about central clearing. Um, and in fact, a lot of the most interesting papers here you'll find in the OR literature, uh, because uh, they, they apply some of their network models to understanding how clearing would work. But um, we can't even answer this yet. <laughs> Uh, in fact, the key paper in this literature, Duffy and Zhu, they show a model and at the end they say, all right, well, we don't know, right? And, and that's, which is a wonderful thing to see in the STEM paper in the literature. It means there's lots to do. Okay, so I've taken most of my time on prevention, as I expected I would. Before I move on to management of crises, uh, I've been talking a lot and haven't given people a chance to talk too much. I'm mean, giving people a chance to comment. So, are there any questions or comments on this? Yeah. The, uh, the, what we advocate, the, uh, the uh, activities that have uh, mountain and leader, the functional, functional regulation, long yes. time ago. Yes. And can you comment on the other, what do you mean by migration is arbitrage, uh, regulatory arbitrage, and the scope of the international. Because you have a uh, deep too. Yeah. Global. Yeah. I mean, I, yes. This is this is not a new thing, um, and it is effectively a form of regulatory arbitrage in these cases. Um, there's a certain logic to thinking about it as functional regulation, and that that would solve that that would solve the problem a bit. That that that's the way to do it. Like if you're if you think that the creation of money-like liabilities, that's what causes fragility then why are we just going after banks? We should just be thinking broadly about the creation of money-like liabilities. And I think that's absolutely true. I think that the task for those of us in the research community is to come up with the carrots and the sticks that enable you to do that. So well, let me just give you an example for that. Um, Gary Gorton and I have been trying to figure out how do you do that for, for repo. So repurchase agreements, they played a big role in the financial crisis. They're very money-like. And uh, one of the reasons they're very money-like is they have a carve-out from bankruptcy. So if you enter in a repo transaction with somebody and you fail to give them the cash back, they can just keep your collateral. And even if you declare bankruptcy, no, the court can't go after them. It makes repo transactions things that you don't have to spend a lot of time trying to figure out if your counterparty is going to default because you know you can just keep their collateral and you don't have to worry about bankruptcy. Um, so since that's what makes it money-like, we have proposed, fine. You can keep doing it, but if you want to have that protection, you simply have to register that you've entered into the transaction and you have to obey some minimum haircut, which would be the equivalent of the capital rule you would have on the same collateral if it was in a bank. Right? The idea is that the function here of creating something that looks like a bank should be regulated the same across these different things. That's one example. But all across this world, if we're going to do functional regulation, which makes sense, in a world where there was only a couple of institutions that could perform some activity, it was easy. You did your functional regulation by looking at the institutions. 
But now that it happens in markets, you're going to need to figure out what enables it to happen in markets. What's the set of legal rules the, the, you know, the government hath giveth when it's legal rules that enable you to do things, when it's the legal structure that enables market activities to happen, that gives you the, the carrot, right? To say, all right, well, if you want to enjoy these rules, then you have to play by, you have to, you know, you have to either obey the same rules as someone else. So your jet, the general point that you're making, it, you know, how different is this than regulatory arbitrage, the old stuff people said about functional regulation. I think it's not, I think conceptually it's the same. I think the challenges are trickier now because um, there's so many places that those functions can be can be done. Yes. Is there any guy from the uh, bank trading desks that traded with each other? Uh, so they were able to clear. They're able to settle across desks with different institutions across the world. Um, they didn't handle it through clearing houses. They handled it through private capital. Before we went to mutual funds, uh, we were able to trade with each other. Before we went to mutual funds, what do you mean? We were able to trade commercial paper, we were able to trade these other things, but we did it all internally with internal rules. Right. Well, they, that's how it worked going into the going up to the financial crisis. It was all, I mean, they, there were basically master agreements between between different banks. And they would take all. They would lump together. This is one of the. This is Daryl Duffy. Daryl Duffy says, the downside of clearinghouses. If you have a clearinghouse for CDS, then you can't offset the CDS stuff that you're doing with the other things that you're doing with these other counterparties. And that's the downside. That's the trade-off. But in general, the, that system did break down in 2008, which, is, which was the problem. That system broke down to the point that large institutions that had long-standing master netting agreements with each other simply weren't letting cash out their door. JP Morgan told AIG, AIG said, all right, well, you know, we need $100 million, give it to us, it's ours. And JP Morgan said, no. <laughs> um, so, you know, to the extent it was sitting in these bilateral relationships, the bilateral relationships, what we learned can freeze. So I, I would say like the, 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 the issue there is to, with respect specifically to central, uh, central counterparties is if you do, if a, uh, and this is maybe Duffy's main point, the more atomistic that central uh, clearinghouse is, if it's only doing one particular thing, you're gonna lose some of the netting you used to have before, even though you gain from bilateral to multilateral in that one instrument, you lose the ability for large bilateral counterparties to net across a lot of different instruments. So I think there's a trade-off, but it's, it's, there's no question that the, the old system, where the government was totally out of it and it was all, that froze. So we learned that can happen. And now we're wondering, well, let's not make it worse, but can we make it better? Good topic for research. Yes? I know you said that there's a lot of research on capital. I'm going to ask you a capital question, but maybe you have an answer. Um, so one of the things that I saw in some, some older data was that it, it seemed like that the smaller banks, and you've touched on that, have a lot more capital than the bigger banks. Uh, has that changed post-crisis, and do you think that the Basel rules will get the, the systemic banks to have more capital than, say, the the one billion dollar in asset banks. Um, well, they're definitely going to bring up the, the they're going to bring up the 
biggest banks from the very low levels they used to be at. Um, one question is, will the small banks hold buffer stocks of capital above the new minimum thresholds? Were they just holding whatever capital they wanted to, or was it a buffer stock over whatever they thought the level was going to be? So one argument for why the smaller banks would hold more equity is they do the cost benefit. For them, the costs are kind of what they are for large banks, but not as big because they don't face as much competition. Um, but the benefit of holding some extra capital is they can't raise capital that fast that they need to. So they have to have a bit of a buffer stock. So if overall the rules pop up, and they're popping up a little more for the big banks, but if overall the rules pop up, if part of the reason the small banks were bigger than the big banks before was because they needed this buffer stock, that effect will still be there. It would only be because of the extra amount, the extra percentage points that we're asking the big banks to do. That might tend to shrink it a little bit. But I would still expect that the buffer stock incentive would be there. Have you seen any uh, some more recent data on the, the differences than the paper you cited, for example? I haven't seen that, like, just an extension of that basic thing. I haven't seen that. I'd be curious to see what that looks like. I don't know if it's any different than it was pre-crisis. Yes? Um, I have a question about uh, activities. Uh, I, I, I think, um, what, from what I observed, uh, the problem was a lot with a lot of assets uh, being too opaque during crisis. It wasn't natural. Uh, a lot of it was just outright fraud. And uh, I, I don't really see regulators focusing on that, or research focusing on that. There is not much wrong with securitization, for example. The problem was that assets were completely misinterpreted, and there was no way for final investor to see what was the underlying. Yeah. So, do you know anything about that? So you're right that, that very little was done on that in the regulation. I would just, it, this calls for a much longer conversation. Um, because your question is really, really very fundamental to why we manufactured the assets the way they would. But I just want to let, I don't want to push back on one piece of it. It's a little outside the scope of this, but I think it's very central, which is that somehow the opacity, the lack of transparency in these, some of these securitized products was the problem. I'll channel Gary Gordon a little bit now. Gary has a paper out now called Banks as Secret Keepers. Uh, and the argument that he has in, in, uh, in this paper with Bengt Holmstrom is essentially the lack of transparency in, say, bank balance sheets and in some of these type of products is a feature, not a bug of them. That, in fact, what you're trying to design effectively is something that where the incentive for a counterparty for you in one of these things to go and produce information about it and have more information than you and introduce an adverse selection problem in your transaction is extremely low. So you basically make it, that's why you kind of layer debt on debt on debt on debt. And it's once that's broken, once you're in a world where actually someone has an incentive to go and figure this stuff out, you don't actually go and figure it out, you just run. And that's basically what happens. So if you think like how transparent, so that some of these CDOs, for example, people say, God, these are really complicated. But if you imagine where those assets sat before they were in the CDOs, they were on like the balance sheet of Goldman Sachs. 
So if I loan money to Goldman Sachs, I have no transparency at all about what's on Goldman Sachs. I mean, Goldman Sachs could change tomorrow everything that they have on their balance sheet. I wouldn't know. The CDO actually has some rules. And what happened is, is but, but the people who were buying most of these things were buying them because they didn't want to think about what, what their values were. They were saying, like, these things are AAA things. I just want to put them in here. I just want to use them as collateral. And so as soon as someone tells you, oh, you might have to figure out what this is, you just get rid of it. Well, I think I think basically this kind of it comes back a little bit to the same thing about liquidity regulation, um, and I am getting too far afield, and I'll I'll end up people will think I'm a nutcase after I say these things. I need like 30 hours to explain this. It, it, it doesn't mean that you'll believe me when I'm done, but I need 30 <laughs> hours to explain why I think this funny way about it. Um, but what I'd say is this: it, it, in the end, if you think, let's just let me see if I can get you to accept some just premises. If you think collectively what the financial system does, in great part, is, is do maturity transformation by taking all the long-run assets that actually produce stuff in the world and manufacturing things that can be used as transactions on the other side. So they have everyone's houses, old-style banks, they have everyone's houses, and they just have deposits. I mean, that's the simplest thing. But then the other version of it is you take everyone's houses, you mash them up nine million times, and then you hand out a tranche of something that's AAA that someone can just use as collateral without thinking about it. It's the same, I would argue, it's the same thing. If you think the financial system is doing that all the time, and that it's effectively doing that to take advantage of a big carry trade and convenience yield, and that's where the incentives are, then it's very difficult to regulate that out of existence. I mean, you can regulate it out of existence in one place. You can say, like, you guys can't do it this way. But the incentive to do it is so big that somewhere we'll design a 40-chain thing to make it happen. Um, so that's my two-minute summary of my 30-hour rant uh, on that particular point. There was a hand in front. Yeah, I was uh, wondering if you could um, you know, tell more about Yeah. Well, there's not great historical analogs. So the two main rules that have been created are the LCR, liquidity coverage ratio, and the NSFR, net safe financial ratio, net stable financial ratio. Funding. Funding. Funding, thank you. Um, and these do two different things. One of them, the liquidity coverage ratio, says you have to have a certain amount of things that you could get out of in the next 30 days. Okay. The NSFR looks at your whole balance sheet and kind of puts things into buckets and says how much of them have to fall into certain buckets. This is sort of like bank capital type thing. Neither of these things has a perfect analog in, in deep history. You can think of reserve requirements, like having to have a certain amount of cash sitting in your vault or sitting at the central bank as being similar to an LCR. Right, so uh, you have to have a certain amount that's there and it depends on what your average withdrawals are, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's not a perfect analog, unfortunately. There's some things like the LCR that are sort of similar to the LCR that various countries put into place. So for instance, the Netherlands put one, had one in place pre-crisis. And there's a paper, I didn't cite it in here, but there's a, there's a paper, it's in the Review of Finance in the last couple of years, that studies that, that tries to look like uh, using some regression discontinuity stuff because banks at different levels have it. 
So, so there's a little bit of that, but there's not, there's, that's it, I would say, on the empirical side. I mean, there's a lot of study of liquidity and liquidity management at banks, but in terms of how they're going to react to these rules and whether we're going to see stuff moving off their balance sheets, there's just not much yet. But we will see it because these rules are now starting to get, the, the rules are, are coming in and they're coming in country by country in staggered ways. So that's going to be the place. Right? There's going to be hundreds of papers uh, over time. So what do you think, how, how long will it take right, to accumulate some data? Oh, I think it'll happen pretty fast after, yeah. you know, I mean, it just, banks are pretty quick uh, at these things. You know, we see at these weekly horizons, we see things uh, in other, in, 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 in the creation of asset-backed commercial paper and um, securitization. I would expect we're going to see these things happen at pretty, pretty quick horizons. What's happening, of course, is that you know they know it's coming, so they do all these incredibly weird design things in advance. Um, for example, and this one's a really this is a completely pernicious one. Um, so for commercial paper, like if if you have commercial paper on your balance sheet uh, that in the next thirty days is going to expire. Right, well then that's that counted a different way than if it has more than 30 days. So they just make all this commercial paper callable. So it's never actually within the last 30 days, you just call it as soon as it gets to 30 days. Uh, so it's like this type of stuff that, that the, the, the regulatory workarounds that you'll see that make it harder to see in macro data what's actually happening. Yes? Yeah, uh, I'm very interested in your, your conclusion. Probably next slide is what, what, what do you suggest the, Pre, the previous slide or no, the... I'm only half done here. I, I just started. <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm just going to jump to the end of managing crisis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, so maybe I ask the question for a small currency uh, nation. Yes. The banking system is just like a way surpasses the GDP and then the, the central bank that was supposed to serve as a lender or last resort. Yes. So, so I, what kind of a macro prudential? Okay, yeah, so all right, so let me, let me state, I haven't been talking about that today. In part, I haven't been talking about this today because that's not really a new problem. Um, and that, that problem we've known is a very significant problem for a long time. And in fact, um, the, the small countries that are highly financialized uh, have, there's a literature on it, the IMF has, has produced some really good databases on it. Very smart people have been thinking about these things since at least the Asian crisis. You know, historically, they've been thinking longer than that, but, but in a modern, sophisticated way. So you face a totally separate, so totally different set of problems if you are a small open economy with a banking sector that's five times your GDP than, than you face in, um, the United States and in Western Europe, they're big economies, some of them have those things. The difference, where I'd say the difference is, what you're describing is a problem that we know is a big deal. I think ultimately the conclusion that came out of a lot of these different places is, um, you know, you're not going to be able to just let your currency flow for free and not have capital controls and think you have a monetary Right, and, and, and so that, that's kind of, everyone understood that, and you better have a whole lot of reserves. And it's a, it's a complicated problem. It's a problem we knew we had, though. The problem that we didn't know we had 12 years ago is like the United States could, the United States financial system could just totally blow up. 
And so we didn't have any rules for that at all. So I don't, I'm not dismissing your question. I think it's a really hard one. It's just one I know. I don't know how to answer, but I know a lot of smart people who think about it. Not me, though. I'm not smart, and I've been thinking about it. Yes? Uh, when you're comparing the capital ratios of small banks versus big banks, there are some externalities uh, in the sense that the larger banks are taking a different kind of risk. You know, if you take the SIFIs of 50 billion and So you'd make, you would think they should have to have more capital? Or less. Or, or less. less. Yeah. Why less? Because they might have, you know, if you go back to the SNL crisis, that's the other time when the banking system blew up. And that was a very simple kind of risk. So why less? Because smaller banks are holding credit risk. Larger banks are holding market risk. So this is their argument yes. for why you have to use risk-weighted assets. So let's just imagine, though, that we get the risk weights right. So you're, you're, what you're, you're talking about is a left side of the balance sheet problem, right? So how do we measure your actually risk-weighted assets? But let's suppose we could do that, which we can, but we're gonna pretend. Um, then is there some reason you think that the actual amount of equity they should hold relative to that properly measured risk-weighted assets would be different, small or large? That's a very difficult question. Yeah. But, okay. but the point is that they are different types of animals. Yeah, and so I think that's why, now we have these debates about, um, so, what you would be pushing back on, and I think you would have a lot of, you would have a lot of fellow travelers in this, is that to the extent you're going to impose a leverage ratio, a straight-out leverage ratio of equity to assets, that you know why are you doing that? The banks are really different in the types of assets that they have, and right now we have both a straight-out leverage ratio and complicated tier one to risk-weighted assets ratios where we try to get that stuff right. So, and I think they're both hard questions. But you're right, there's no, there's, it, it, we, it's easy to identify certain things. People say, well, the small banks aren't as well diversified. In general, they're, you know, they'll have like mortgages from the 10 miles around their bank. That's not that <laughs> diversified. And, and which is the other, people will often say like, big banks are, a, big banks are the problem. And the problem is, uh, not this room I know, but you know, the, out in the world. Big banks are the problem, you just gotta make banks smaller. It reminded me, like in the Great Depression, we had 30,000 banks. They were all small, and we had a horrible financial crisis. And we had financial crises, you know, pretty much every 10 to 20 years historically without having big banks and without having government bailouts. So, so the, the complication in all of this, you know, what, we, what, what, what I'm always kind of screaming and yelling at my co-authors about, um, so I can do it to you guys too. Just, you know, we can't, any of the things that we answer, if they fix the last crisis, if they make it so that the last crisis didn't happen, that's, that's not good enough. Because the next crisis won't be like the last one. It might be some mit, some average of the last 50, but it won't look exactly like the last one. I'm sorry, you had a follow-up. Just, just one more. On the central clearing, what Duffy doesn't talk about, and it's not talked about a lot, is that by making central clearing, margin or collateral ratios, they basically become a concentrated rating agency. In other words, if they decide that this asset, asset class is not, is not yes. good enough, then, then yes. that itself could cause a crisis. Yes. Um, cause? Well, I'm, I, I'm absolutely certain that a clever theorist could write down a model where that would be destabilizing. But I'm not sure that would be the general case. But you might be able to convince me. And I discovered I have like almost no time. So I'm gonna not, I, I wanna jump ahead to the big questions. Blah, 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 blah. All right, managing, I told you I ate too many slides. They'll all be posted. They will all be posted, I promise.
All right. <laughs> Big open questions in crisis management. I, I wouldn't want to leave without saying how, how important these are. Hundreds of programs in the global financial crisis across countries. Where, well, I'm currently working on a project. We're just cataloging them. I'm not going to study all of them. They're too hard. Okay, there's hundreds of them. And just in the United States, actually, we had all these emergency lending programs. We've really studied a lot the TAF, the term auction facility. There's a bunch of papers about that. Okay. Uh, the, on the capital side, we have TARP. We have a lot of papers on TARP, half of them written by Linus. Okay. So, you know, we have a, we have a lot of, the, there's papers written on a couple of our programs, but then there's a ton of things. You know, there's the commercial paper funding facility, it's hundreds of billions of dollars. There's, there's almost nothing that's out there on it. And this is just the U.S. Every country did this. So, uh, and in each of these cases, there's often little cool little design things. I'll just throw this out, and I have almost no time. The term auction facility in the United States, that's why I had a bunch of slides showing it. But the really cool thing about the term auction facility is essentially just like the discount window, except you auction. It's an auction instead of just going. It was designed to reduce stigma. And in fact, people paid higher interest rates at the at, at, for the term auction facility funds than at the discount window. So they could have just gone to the discount window and said, please give me this for 2%. Instead, they went into a big auction and went hooray when they got it for 3%. Yeah. Okay? So why was that? Because there's a lot of evidence that was because they were able to do term auction facility and get funds there without getting any stigma. Okay? Why? Why would you be able to get any stigma? Well, there was one incredibly clever little design feature in the term auction facility. I don't know how important people pay attention to the time. You could not get your, at the discount window, you go and you ask for money, you get your money the same day. Term auction facility, they don't give you your money for three days. What an incredible screening device. Nobody who's really desperate for money would go and uh, have to wait three days to get their money. So you're actually willing to pay more to show everybody that you don't need the money uh, the next day. Okay, this is like an incredibly clever little design thing. I don't know, some person, at the, some lawyer at the New York Fed came up with it or something like that, but it's ingenious. And hundreds of things all over the world. People tried all sorts of ingenious things, and we don't know what worked and what didn't work. So we, there's so much to do. All right, what principles emerge from these evaluations? What elements of program design would maximize confidence, minimize stigma, and have the lowest political cost? Okay, so we got to get to it. We just like had uh, uh, all these disease outbreaks all over the world. We got to figure out what medicines work. Okay, and how should we now, during relatively calm times, best design the rules of the road for panic times? The wrong time to have these debates is when we're in the middle of a crisis, right? And so that's why I, I, what makes me nervous is we don't have that many papers on these things right now. We're waiting because it's boring, right? We're not having a crisis now. We have to set up our bank capital rules now. So we better do research on that. Well, we got to do this now. Okay, so I'm sorry it's late in the day and I've kept everybody two minutes late. I'm always guilty of that. But I'm going to hang around and... I think it's upstairs where they're having drinks, right? Yes. yes. All right. So anybody wants to join? That was Andrew Metric of Yale University. Uh, at the very beginning of the talk, you heard Jeff Coles, who was the VP uh, for the program of the 2017 FMA in Boston. Uh, Jeffrey L. Coles is a professor at the University of Utah. I probably will bring you another session from the 2017 FMA. I recorded Field Experiments in Entrepreneurship Research presented by Yale, Yale Hochberg, uh, who's a professor at Rice University, but she's currently visiting the University of Chicago, according to her talk. 
I'm not sure. I might not because the sound quality was not super good. Um, we'll see how it goes on the editing room floor. Professor Metric spoke very loudly, uh, but Professor Hawkbird did not. And that you can see Professor Hawkbird's talk at the Facebook page for the Finance Professor podcast. We also did that YouTube live. And of course, you can watch the talk by Professor Metric at our YouTube channel, Linus Wilson. I may read a couple more papers. I'm probably going to record uh, the paper about the commercial paper funding facility that's joint work with Wendy Wu in an upcoming episode. And I may also uh, do one about the TALF program for CMBS assets too. And I've not extended any interview requests, but if you know someone that uh, would like to be interviewed on the Finance Professor podcast, uh, you can do that. But I, you know, I've been thinking about who would I love to have, and certainly Andrew Metric would have been high on that list, as would have his co-author Gary Gordon. So hopefully we'll hear from some other uh, finance professors about their research in the coming months. Goodbye for now. My name's Linus Wilson. Subscribe to our free newsletter at financeprofessor.org.